If you're an industrial control system security nerd, it's been a great week for you. Luckily, we've watched all the news from S4 Unfold, and we have a recap. In our interview, we talked to Nate Lesser, whose company has a unique take on security and is coming out of stealth mode. Buildings, cranes, Fortnite, they're all hackable, and we will tell you why. This is Securiosity. Welcome to Securiosity for January 18th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jenna Daniel, coming to you a few blocks where we hope to see a lot of you at ShmooCon. Very excited to spend the weekend and hear what's going on there. But before that takes off, the big S4 conference took place in Miami this week, and we were all over it. Tons of fascinating research all over the place. In our interview this week, we talked to Nate Lester of Sipient Black. Sipient Black is coming out of stealth mode to give high-level VIPs a better bite of the security apple. Really interested to hear about that, but first, let's get to the news. Engineers responding to the Trisis malware that hit Saudi Arabia petrochemical plant in 2017 missed a key opportunity to prevent the plant from shutting down a second time in August that year, an investigator of the incident said Tuesday. Julian Gutmanis, an industrial cybersecurity specialist who responded to the second crisis outage in August 2017, said Tuesday at the 2019 S4 conference that the scope of the initial outage investigation that occurred in June 2017 was insufficient. He also said during this talk that Schneider Electronic, the company whose equipment was targeted, never communicated their knowledge about Trisis until their own S4 talk in 2018. Greg, this has been top of Trisis for a while now. How does this change things? Um, it's really interesting to hear that Schneider put everything out there publicly and didn't talk to the actual IR people that were on the ground in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that seems like a crucial detail. You would want to talk to the company that had their uh, equipment. Why wouldn't they do that? That's a good question. I I would love to uh, find out. Uh, Schneider, I don't think, gave us comment. Uh, Sean Lingus, who is our senior reporter, was in Miami for all of this this week. And I believe he reached out to Schneider, but they didn't really have a comment about it. Um, If you go back to our original story, when we first broke uh, the big back and forth that went into the IR with Trisis, Schneider was kind of all over the place with their IR. So it falls in line with the way that they were reacting to this. But um, I don't know. I don't work for Schneider, so I can't tell you why they sat on it. Obviously, they are trying to be guarded about this because, look, this is a very dangerous piece of malware. So I understand being hesitant, but I feel like you would want to talk to the IR people that did actual work on this before actually going public with it. I mean, that seems to be a, a reverse of the way that you would want to go about it. Fascinating. So nearly 773 million email addresses and almost 22 million unique passwords were discovered on the cloud storage service Mega. Breach researcher Troy Hunt announced Thursday. The 87-gigabyte database is spread across 12,000 files and appears to have originated from many different sources dating back to 2008. Some 140 million email addresses and 10 million passwords are new to Hunt's Have I Been Pwned website, the free service that tracks whether user credentials have been made available in data dumps. The database gives scammers a valuable new tool to launch credential stuffing attacks, which we've been talking about for a while now. They occur when hackers plug credential information leaked in prior data breaches into other sites targeting users who reuse username and password on multiple sites. Jen, did you get a notification that you're in the database? I didn't, but 773 million versus 22 million? I mean, stop repeating passwords. Yeah, you got lucky. I am in this. I got a notification. I think that's how this story basically broke, is that a lot of security journalists have all their information in this, uh, in Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned database, because I know I was 
on the couch on Wednesday night and I, it's, hey, you're in this. And it's like, oh, no. man. Well, I mean, it's it's really interesting to me. I, I have to go back, honestly, for myself and do a little bit of due diligence because, look, this originated from many different sources dating back to 2008. My password hygiene in 2008, I'm, I'm 100% sure, was not as good as it was, you know, now. So, I, look, I've changed passwords. I've obviously gone through and have changed things since then, but it's still, like – I don't know what I was doing in 2008. I was sure. probably on message boards that yeah. I don't remember if they were, you know, wrecked or not at any certain point. I, I know, like, there have been – I think V Bulletin was one of the big um, third parties where you could set up message boards. I know V Bulletin has been breached. I don't remember what my password's for on, on any sort of those forums. Yeah. So it, it just goes to show how much stuff really is out there and – what can come back to bite you. Absolutely. And you have to go back and change your passwords for even things that you just don't use anymore. Um, I was actually at a security conference um, last year and somebody went shopping on an eBay account that I don't even remember having, but probably the first year eBay came out I had um, and managed to charge a ton of power tools um, via my PayPal account, who's also I hadn't used in years and years and years, right? So old passwords, right? Somewhere it's, out there, it's probably crazy, the same password. Right? It's crazy what we for, forget about doing. I mean, it's not out of just laziness, but that's just the way that the internet works. You, you yeah. start doing something, and then you just back forget then about it, it didn't right. seem that important to, to be worried about sort of passwords being stolen. Now it is, but if you don't right. use it for years and years and years, you probably forgot you had right. it. And there had been some discussion when we talked about this story over like the advice that had been going out and some people came back to us and said, okay, just saying change your password is kind of outdated. You should be saying get a password manager, start using MFA. But I think about my password manager as well. While I have a a, a lot of, you know, passwords have hard entropy in my um, in my password manager, but I haven't changed those you know, in six, nine months, in 12 months, since I've started using a password manager too. So there is still that added layer of don't reuse, not only don't reuse passwords, because passwords managers don't really reuse passwords unless you're manually plugging them in, but change those passwords. You also have to change those passwords pretty regularly too. So there is a bit of hygiene that goes into it, that it's just not only don't reuse your passwords, but also change them change the same them. way you change yeah. your batteries in a smoke detector. That's I don't, what's happening. I kind of feel like those don't remind me to change my passwords, though. So I'm guilty of that as well. So this next item is going to be really, really, really bad. A server at the Oklahoma Securities Commission exposed millions of sensitive files, including thousands of individuals, social security numbers, and other personal identifying information, including the names and conditions of terminally ill AIDS patients. If this wasn't enough, it also had email archives going back to 1999, as well as information related to FBI investigations. The exposure was discovered by the cybersecurity firm UpGuard, which announced Wednesday that it has notified state officials about it late last year. In a post on its website, the company says one of its analysts spotted the commission's (laughs) server on Shodan, a search engine for internet-connected devices and identified as potentially storing sensitive files. Oklahoma officials were notified the next day, and public access to the server was removed. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> How does one server have all that information? Hey, I mean, we talk about uh, uh, network segmentation when we talk about uh, IT and, you know, there's 
server segmentation too. I mean, this goes to show that this these are the dangers that you run when you decide, okay, I'm just going to centralize all of the information that we have. You could segment it out and ration it out, and it, um, you know, your your attack vector grows. Yeah. You could just. Or you could do the opposite here and put everything in one pot and just hope that pot mm. doesn't doesn't end up on the public internet. Well, it ended up on the public internet. And yes, it did. Look, this wasn't exposure. This wasn't necessarily a breach, though I'm not sure if there was any information to say that this was accessed by any, you know, hackers or, or criminals or anything like that. But... I, I'm trying to wrap my head around what the government office is that stores information on FBI investigations, but also stores information on the names and conditions of terminally ill AIDS patients. Like that Sounds seems like a such a wide yeah. swath of information. I'm, I'm, and I'm trying to wonder how that all gets set up that way. So, hey, uh, I, of course, uh, the, the majority of you out there listening are all IT people, and I'm sure this is something that you wrestle with time and time again. And this is a perfect example of what can happen when you store everything in a centralized server. I imagine it's it's a lot of overworked um, state employees. Yeah, uh, and uh, that happens, and you, you hope things like that. Mm, this doesn't happen. Yeah. Like it just is. It's it's it's. <laughs> bad that it came to this and this is what upguard does i mean and, and, and kudos for upguard for notifying them uh about it and taking it all offline and following the right Seriously. disclosure processes but again long line of stuff that upguard has done that says just be careful the way that you're storing stuff when it's connected to the internet so vulnerabilities in radio frequency protocols could allow hackers to move cranes and other big machinery at construction sites and factories, security researchers said Tuesday. A research team at Trend Micro examined remote controllers made by seven vendors and found that all of them were susceptible to replay <laughs> attacks, in which an attacker transmits a recorded radio frequency, tricking the machinery into responding to commands. In other words, the remote control you use to open your garage is probably more secure than many controllers used to move industrial equipment. Jen, this is fascinating to me because who is really thinking about this? Who's worried about radio frequencies when it comes to industrial-type cranes? Apparently nobody. (laughs) Um, I imagine someone is now um, building their startup around this as we speak. But wow, that's scary. Yeah. I mean, look, we talk about ICS security all the time, but we talk about it and a lot of the times everybody's minds go to – the power grid or sure. uh, an oil and gas company or a like pharmaceutical plant even. Are, are, are we thinking about the crane that's two blocks away that's that's gutting uh, the building? No. I mean, they, they, it just goes to show the paradigm shift that we're going through. It, this isn't anybody being nefarious. This is just something that is part and parcel with the way that we live right now. This is something that companies are going to start having to think about. I, I, I don't I don't know any of these crane vendors. Like I doubt that any of these crane vendors so look, are even thinking about the security that are going into their products, let alone their own IT systems. I mean look, I mean it's in terms of like cranes and construction technology, we're still working on putting video cameras up on these cranes so that crane operators can actually see sort of what's behind them in front of them. Um, so they don't like tear down the wrong thing. Yeah, there that, you go. I mean, that's and where we are. those could obviously probably be be manipulated on their own too. Are sure. you encrypting that yeah. video? 
um, that video feed? I mean, because that could be manipulated just because it's found on the internet or something like that. And then you have a disaster where a crane does smack a building and, and there's loss of life and things like there's that. There's a little startup in Virginia Beach that we can um, grill on all these topics. Awesome. <laughs> So another week, another MageCard update. A new MageCard group infected hundreds of e-commerce websites by leveraging an advertising plugin to steal payment information, according to RiskIQ and TrendMicro. Researchers from the two companies said that while the attack resembled previous incidents, this one appears to have been carried out by a new gang RiskIQ dubbed MageCart Group 12. Really unique names here. <laughs> the card scammer is programmed to look out for keywords like billing and checkout in French, English, and German. Researchers said Adverline, the company that makes the infected plugin, has remediated the issue. Greg, this thing just keeps growing and growing yeah. and growing. Yeah, uh, Magecart. Uh, more and more groups are seeing what's going on out there and trying to pile on. And, you know, it's a combination of living off the land and retooling yeah. retooling the attacks for uh, the targets that they want to. Um, of course... If you've been listening to this for some time, we've been talking about MageCard, I feel like, every week now. Mm-hmm. And we're going to continue to talk about it because Group 12, which means the, I think the last time there was an update, there were six groups. So now we've doubled. Oh, we yeah. have now doubled in the amount of groups that are using this malware. So this is obviously going to keep growing the more yeah. and more uh, we see you know, these e-commerce sites depend on third-party platforms to do their billing and their forms and everything like that. So um, kind of a plug here for us actually next week. The uh, Risk IQ researcher that has been top of mind when it comes to MageCart, Jonathan Klinsman, is actually going to join us. That's so exciting. we are going to talk about uh, MageCart again next Woo! week. Um, and I want to hear all about uh, the research that he's been doing because he's been the point person on this. Uh, we've been trying to get him for a couple of weeks. And we're excited to get him on to finally talk about what we're seeing with this MageCart stuff. Awesome. So Ren Zhengfei, the billionaire founder of Chinese telecommunication giant Huawei, has denied that the Chinese government uses his company to conduct espionage. In his first interview with foreign media in nearly four years, Ren told reporters that Huawei does not have regular contact with Beijing and that he would decline any request to provide sensitive information about the company's clients. Ren's defense of Huawei coincides with the recent arrest of his daughter, the chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou, for allegedly violating U.S. sanctions. Ren, who's 74, is a former People's Liberation Army officer who founded Huawei in 1987. I love my country. I support the Communist Party, he said, but I will not do anything to harm the world. Jen, do you believe him? Absolutely not. (laughs) I mean, he's part of the Communist Party. Obviously, he's going to use his company to, to... support what he considers the greater good. Right. He's being the CEO just like any CEO here. He's going to say what he has to say to protect his company, but the government's going to come calling, whether it's publicly or privately, especially inside China, he's going to have to comply. And I I think the Chinese government knows that. Look, the Chinese government has had their cybersecurity laws in effect. They've been really pushing since their big law in 2014. And they're going to do what they want because that's way that the Chinese government operates. So, um, look, uh, yeah, Huawei, CEO, I I get where he's coming from, but I I personally, like, look, if the Chinese government wants that information, they're going to get it the way that they want, no matter what uh, the the Huawei's founder says. So let's move on to my least favorite car. Can you hack a Tesla? Are you ready to prove it? Pond to Own is bringing car hacking to its March competition in Vancouver. 
inviting security research to demonstrate zero-day exploits on a Tesla Model 3 for cash prizes. Ponta Own is known for offering bounties for live demos of zero days against web browsers and enterprise applications, among other things, which will still be in the case which will still be the case in March. Prizes for hacking the Tesla range from $35,000 to $300,000 based on the severity and execution of the exploit. Ponda Own says the addition of the category is part of a drive to direct research efforts towards areas of growing concern for business and consumers. Greg, Tesla really seems to be leading the way when it comes to being forward about its InfoSec. Yeah, um, this is something that we've seen for uh, a while now. I think back to DEF CON. DEF CON, yeah. Elon Musk just popped out of the woodwork and was in the car hacking village and uh, was talking, I think we talked uh, to uh, Bug Crowd's Jason Haddix about the meeting that mm-hmm. Elon had because Bug Crowd, I think, does the public bug bounty for Tesla. So this is just uh, another way for for Tesla to sort of move forward with this. I mean, their, their cars more than any other cars are computers. Absolutely. So... Um, they, think, they want to figure out ways to make sure that they don't get hacked. Sorry, I heard this morning they cut 7% of their um, staff this week, last week. Do you think any of those people could be security people and this is why they're doing a bug bounty? I, I saw that uh, come out. I haven't had a chance to read that story yet. Um, but, I mean, that gets into the whole notion of just bug bounties and this sort of crowdsourced mm-hmm. research. It's cheap pen testing. Pen testing can be expensive if you Absolutely. actually go to firms. So this is a way for bigger companies to have cheap pen tests. Oh, we can talk about the merits of that. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on the merits of that altogether. But um, that that this is how the ecosystem is set up right now. So uh, I can see how savvy companies like Tesla are going to try to take advantage of it in any way that they can. Hard-coded default passwords have been found in a popular business access control system, and the company behind the product has failed to release patches for the issue, according to researchers from Tenable. Tenable said it discovered four vulnerabilities in a version of Premises, an access control system run by Mannheim, Pennsylvania-based Identicard. The most glaring flaw was hard-coded credentials providing administrator access to the entire service via the endpoint that controls the system. These credentials can be used by an attacker to dump contents of the badge system database, modify contents, and other various tasks with unfettered access. Making it worse was the fact that the company has yet to respond to Tenable's findings, meaning the flaws are still out there waiting to be exploited. We have talked about business access control points. I feel like this is our third straight podcast talking about it, and I feel like this is a great example, Jen, of what not to do. I'm just at a complete loss for why they haven't responded to Tenable's findings. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So they didn't respond to Tenable's findings. They didn't respond to my comments. So uh, backing up a little bit here, Identicard is owned by a parent company, the Brady Corporation, which is based in Wisconsin. I tried to get a hold of the Brady Corporation to be like, uh, what gives? They were like, oh, absolutely. Let's give, we'll give you 24 hours or we'll call you back, basically. That call never came back. I think they ended up calling Gizmodo back saying, well, you know, we take this very seriously. Basically, your standard tech company non-denial denial that anything was wrong. So not great. Uh, this is not great. Uh, what makes this also not great is the fact that Identicard is used in a lot of government buildings. Yep. You have a, a – you talk a lot – 
we hear a lot of talk about right now with the government shutdown and how it leaves a lot of agencies vulnerable. That's through the internet. Let's think about this in a hypothetical where it's the combination of the internet and physical security. You have a company now, Identicard, that has tons of government contracts mm-hmm. and owns uh, a lot of access control systems in government buildings. A lot of security personnel that are contracted out to work security in those buildings are not employed right now. Well, they're employed, but they're furloughed. They're not getting paid or they're not coming to work at all. So now you have the scenario where you have this vulnerable system that's not being watched over by the contractors that are supposed to be watching over the security system. And it's like the doors are unlocked yep. for, yep. for buildings. That's bad. That's where the, the, the shutdown really does start to take effect. Obviously, that's a hypothetical scenario, but it's not one that's like wildly improbable. And that's why not responding to this isn't just a PR fiasco. It's an actual security fiasco. You're a security company that's not providing security anymore. What are you doing? So just my, my wild guess on this is that Identicard has no idea how to fix their problem. So if you know how to fix their problem, please contact them because I'm not sure they know what they're doing. So Epic Games, the maker of the popular Fortnite, has fixed a flaw in its web infrastructure that would have allowed hackers to steal gamers' login tokens and take control of their accounts, according to the cybersecurity firm Checkpoint. Researchers were able to hijack an old Epic Games domain, proving hackers could have accessed victims' tokens without having to send a traditional phishing email. It's not clear if the vulnerability was exploited outside of Checkpoint's findings, but some players have in the past said their account was abused without having been phished for their credentials. Greg, some players will do anything for V-Bucks, huh? That's that's really what all of this is about, and that's what's so fascinating to me, is people are hijacking these accounts just to get into the associated, uh, whether it's Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft, whatever uh, platform they're playing on, the credit card attached to the online store, in order to buy the dances and the skins like that's what all of this is about it's that's wild to me that that this is what's like it's not just even the credit card number that that they you could have the credit card number stolen and go off and do all types of things and yet this is all tied to the fact that uh, i i need to buy orange justice dances or i need to buy you know (laughs) well the the floss dance yeah i mean you've probably read the articles that have come out about Fortnite and how it's just highly addictive and people are really having trouble managing their children um, that are playing this game. The stories that I've heard about that uh, just offhand, outside of what's been in the published media, but just anecdotally from yeah. from people, not coworkers' kids, but like friends of friends that have coworkers who kids are like stealing credit cards and sneaking off to buy $100 worth of Fortnite credit. It's it, it, like – yeah. Savages. <laughs> yeah. So turned our these are like savages. Yes. So these are like innocent little kids doing this. So imagine what you do when you've got like a bunch of hackers um, also playing this. I'm not surprised. So finally, the Security and Exchange Commission and Department of Justice announced charges Tuesday against an alleged Ukrainian hacker and several other suspects in a scheme where non-public information was taken from the commission's corporate filing system and used for illegal trading. Alexander Iromenko is alleged to have hacked into the SEC's Edgar system, accessing test files, which companies can use to submit information ahead of public earnings reports. According to the SEC and the U.S. Attorney in New Jersey, Iromenko extracted non-public test files from SEC servers and then passed the information to different groups of traders. The traders then made transactions 
before at least 157 earnings releases from May to October 2016, generating at least $4.1 million in illegal profits. Iromenko is on the run, having been charged with crimes for his role in a similar scam that resulted in PR wires like Business Wire being hacked for inside information. Jen, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this and how it fits into what you advise companies to do when it comes to corporate governance, because this is something that they're going to have to do as they grow, but it's also something that they can't control. So how do you advise a company on how to watch out for something like this? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I have, I have absolutely no idea um, on, on really, I mean, best practices are best practices, and obviously it fails in this scenario yeah i mean it, i guess it's upon the sec to it is you know be be careful with their systems and they found this the whole reason that this has even come about is because they found this vulnerability closed it and then realized in an investigation that oh hey that this is th- there was criminal action here so but it just strikes me as maybe just as simple as well okay let's Put your numbers blank on test files. Yeah, give the SEC dummy text. Give them Lauren Ipsum or or find some way to do that so you you don't have to worry about the fact that there might be glaring flaws on top of everything. So, um, yeah, just a really, really interesting case in that, hey, if it's not through V-Bucks, there are some hackers out there that are ready to go get money in the tried and true way through, you know, the the stock exchanges and, uh, and figuring I mean, out ways to do insider yeah, trading. I mean, really, really interesting. I guess it could take a stock eventually too. So that is a perfect segue into our interview with Nate Lesser. Nate is going to tell us more about his company that has recently come out of stealth and is helping high-ranking officials protect themselves when it comes to cybersecurity. Check it out. With us today is Nate Lesser, CEO of Siphon Black. So we understand you're coming out of um, stealth mode. Tell us about what you're working on and and what brings you out of stealth mode. Yeah, so I, I guess technically we're still in stealth, but we're starting to have this kind of conversation with lots of people who are uh, and and share the results that we've got from uh, our first customer pilots and and start to get out there in the marketplace. And fundamentally, we're talking about changing how cybersecurity products and services are delivered. Um, there's, a, there's an ideological gap in the marketplace today between corporate cybersecurity capabilities and services and personal cybersecurity capabilities and services. And what we're doing is bridging that gap by providing enterprise-grade, holistic capabilities to protect the digital personal life of high-value targets. And so you use executives as shorthand for that. It's executives and other high-value targets. So talk to me a little bit about that gap. Um, because it seems like you're right. There does seem to be a gap between corporate cybersecurity and personal cybersecurity. So, how are you bridging that gap, and what are you doing that necessarily meshes the two together? Sure. Well, we're we're, we're not meshing the two together. It's a great. It's a great point, right? Okay. So we when you talk to uh, the chief security officers and chief information security officers at large corporations, there's a recognition that. Uh, as there is amongst the rest of the cybersecurity community, if you want to breach the enterprise, you go after the people. Mm-hmm. That's how you do it, right? You talk to, to almost to a person. Every cybersecurity executive, uh, expert will tell you the same thing. Um, the problem is that hackers have gotten sophisticated enough to realize how to target the personal lives of executives, and we see it across the entire spectrum, 
right? Large enterprises, banks, healthcare, financial services, we see it in um, retail, even big brands, and now we're seeing it in government. I mean, one of the biggest stories of the last month was the uh, doxing of the personal information of German politicians. Right. And we're seeing that those breaches, unfortunately, they have a direct impact on the enterprise as well. So CISOs realize this, chief security officers realize this, so why don't they just do something about it, right? That's what we would all say. Well, you've got, you're spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on this corporate cybersecurity team. Why can't you just bring the personal life of your executives under into scope? Well, it takes most of us a couple of seconds to think that through and then realize that's, that's not gonna work well, right? If I was to offer you a job and say, we'd love for you to become our new COO, he said, yeah, oh, that's fantastic. I can't wait to join the company and get started. And then I said, the only condition of your employment that we didn't discuss before is the fact that we need to be able to monitor your home network and your personal devices, your kids' devices, to really provide you with that holistic coverage. Yeah, it's a total non-starter, right? Nobody wants their personal life inside the corporation, even if they're the CEO of the company. Similarly, the companies don't want any responsibility for this. If you're a publicly traded enterprise, you want have no want to have no part of the network logs from your executives' home right. or the devices and where their kids are browsing to. So, it, it, what we refer to as the independence of privacy requires that this be done by an outside entity. At the same time, as a cybersecurity community, we kind of fell down on the job. Right? We we end up doing two things that are really fundamentally problematic, in my opinion. One of them is we say. Cybersecurity is really hard, so you should all be good at it, right? When we're sitting around talking to ourselves, fine, but when we're out in the real world talking to executives who have a day job, right? We say cybersecurity is really hard, so you should be patching your systems and updating. You should be running backups, and you should have advanced endpoint detection, and you should be using two-factor authentication everywhere and not reusing passwords. We have this litany of things, right? And it becomes the do-it-yourself approach to security which is all the enterprise really can give to their executives, their okay. board members, or other high-value targets. We're trying to flip that on its head and fundamentally say, cybersecurity is really hard. It's true, it is. So we should do it for you. So we definitely want to get into more about that. But first, I know you have uh, a background at NIST. So how did your time at the NIST uh, Cybersecurity Center of Excellence play a role at all in, sure. in shaping the current perspective of the industry and how you developed your, your company. So great, first I want to commend you on getting the name of that right. Mikulski, <laughs> who named the center, had trouble with it often. Um, the, the NCCOE, or we sometimes just refer to it as the, the uh, Cyber National Lab because it was okay. easier um, and had the same structure as the other national labs, was a fantastic place to see how industry, academia, and, uh, and government can really come together to solve problems. Right, so working there was amazing. Working with the people across NIST was incredible. It's, a, it's an organization that is really mission-focused and dedicated to making cybersecurity better, to improving standards and improving the adoption of standards across the marketplace. For me, it was a fantastic opportunity to see what the landscape looked like. We had industry partners up and down the stack, you know, the largest tech companies in the world, all the way down to the newest, greatest innovators. And we had partners from academia who were doing this fantastic research. We had folks that we were collaborating with across government, not just NIST, but outside. And it allowed us, and NIST is really good at this convening function, it allowed us to bring together all of those piece parts and see where the biggest gaps were in the marketplace. For me, 
this kind of coalesced into a real challenge around, as we've been talking about, this ideological gap, right? As a community, we tend to provide really strong cybersecurity capabilities to the enterprise. And we do that, and when we say enterprise grade, it becomes kind of a buzzword, but, but it really, for us, it means something. What it means is really strong capabilities that are impossible to manage. Okay. So it's, they're great as long as you've got an entire 24 by 7 security team sitting there making sure they keep working. Yeah, I was actually going to talk to you about so that term overall, because we hear military grade all the time when it, comes grade, to right. when it comes to encryption, sure. and that really doesn't mean anything. Yep. So it's nice that to hear you have an actual definition for enterprise grade that actually makes sense, because that does make sense in that it's, sure, we have all these capabilities, but it's the management part that gets to be a problem. That's always been a challenge. For well, and that's why if you say to somebody, here's the top 10 list, right? Go, go set up and configure properly a firewall and keep managing it for your home. You know, the vast majority of people just their eyes glaze over. But even the ones who are technically sophisticated enough to know what you're talking about will look at you and say, that sounds like a full-time job for somebody else because I already have it. Right. Right. So let's talk about the concept of making executives hard to hack. How big of a problem are the personal digital lives of executives at a big organization? And can you define what those personal areas of risk are? Any real world examples that you're able to share? Anything like that? Sure. So, so we kind of have two perspectives on this, right? There's the, there's the corporate perspective, which, you know, again, comes back to corporate risk. And then there's the individual perspective. I'm going to start with the corporate executive, and that also kind of splits into two places. There are attacks that on the digital personal lives of executives where you can compromise personal technology and use it to pivot into that enterprise, right? You can, you can launch cryptoware attacks on enterprise devices because you've compromised somebody's phone. Um, similarly, there are attacks that, and these are in some cases a lot more insidious, that compromise business operations or compromise corporate data that don't ever hack the enterprise. Right, so we use some, some examples from the real world of this, and I'll, I'll give you two. One, I can't disclose the names, but one was a large auto manufacturer whose CEO was in the midst, the company was in the midst of a nasty labor dispute. So they were just not able to come to, to, to any kind of agreement. It was okay. going back and forth. And when protesters showed up at the restaurant where the daughter of the CEO was having lunch, okay. somebody thought to check her phone, and it turns out she had malicious tracking software on her phone that was leaking her, her location. Wow, okay. Right. So that's, that's the kind of thing that you, you go back and say, okay, that's really frightening. It can also completely derail a sensitive negotiation at a critical time. Um, similarly, we saw, uh, this is maybe the most uh, archetypal example, um, doing all the right things, and this is, I keep emphasizing this, the people we're talking about are trying to do all the right things, right? So a CISO hands a laptop that's locked down and only connected to the enterprise over VPN, and it's got full disk encryption, and he gives it to his CFO, right? And this is a real world example. She takes it home, and being the CFO of a publicly traded global company, is getting ready for an earnings call okay. next week. She then gets a sensitive report from one of her finance directors and prints it on her own printer. Now that scenario, she's you know, printing anywhere, that's, that is a standard, appropriate sure. corporate business operation. Unfortunately, because of commodity attacks on home routers and home printers, mm -hmm. we know that in this case it was already compromised and the hackers who then used it to try and blackmail the enterprise 
were able to get access to that sensitive financial report a week, week and a half ahead of the corporate earnings call. Yeah, it's very funny that you say that because there was just a story this week about an Ukrainian hacker being charged by the DOJ and the SEC because he actually got into the Edgar system and stole some test files from a public earning from a bunch of public earnings companies, and that was actually used for illegal training. And we were just talking earlier about. I mean, how do you prevent that if you're a, a company? So I would love to hear your opinion on that because it sounds like you could follow everything that you're doing and you still have that risk of depending on all the third-party systems that you integrate with and you could have your information out there and fall into the hands of the wrong people. You, you can. I mean, at the end of the day, we all know that there's no, there's no secure, there's only more secure and less secure. Right. right. That said, we already have an answer to this. It's not like at SAP and Black we're developing the newest science that underlies some kind of great uh, magic pill. What we're, what we're doing is applying the lessons learned and the capabilities and technologies that already exist in the corporate world to the digital personal lives of our protectees. So when we say holistic, it means covering the devices, computers, you know, tablets, phones, IoT devices of our protectees. It means covering home networks, and it means covering online accounts, identity and reputation, and encrypted comms, and then bringing the entirety of that that digital personal life, that unit, in under a consistent level of protection where it's all being monitored and managed. But from our, so it's, it's really critical that it's holistic. It's critical that it's just as strong as the enterprise, right? Because hackers look at the enterprise, they say, that's a hard target, I'm gonna shift focus, that's what they're, if, if there's one thing that hackers are incredibly good at, it's finding the weak link. We know that, right, consistently across the board. So you don't want any part of your digital personal life to be that weak link. And then the last piece is making it really, really easy for our protectees, for users in general. Cybersecurity isn't something where we can expect massive behavioral change because, as we all know, <laughs> then our users are just going to go around the right. protections we put in place. So why just the focus on um, high-level executives or VIPs? Because certainly people's assistants and, um, you know, director level, early that, right? They have access to the same data. You know, I certainly am at home putting together reports for somebody else to present. So why are you also protecting that next couple steps down? So it's a fantastic question. Uh, we use executive as shorthand for high value target. Um, it becomes kind of a long explanation when you say, well, this type of guy, but you're absolutely right. We've had uh, an early customers come back to us and say, we need to cover the executive assistance of every one of our, our, our executives. So it's executives and the executive, because they have the executive assistants often have even greater access to critical information, uh -huh. to systems. This is exactly what you're talking about. Um, what we'd like to be able to say is this is applicable to everybody. And that's the long-term vision of the company. We believe cybersecurity should be purchased as a service. You pay an annual fee and it covers your whole digital personal life. Today, we're launching the version that allows us to get uh, coverage for a smaller group of people because we're still learning how to deliver it in a way that is uh, that, that will be consistent across every user, and frankly, it's just too expensive today to do that for an entire company. So what does that sell, like, what does that sell into um, an enterprise look like, right? I think you said you had pilot customers. I think that's always the hardest sale 
um, for a startup is to get that first like two, three, four clients. Yeah, it is hard. And, the, and there's no question that some of this is also shifting the mindset around security and how it's delivered and how it's bought. Um, so it's, it's challenging in a couple of ways. One is that companies have to be on board with buying this as an executive benefit. And that's actually where it goes on the books, right? So when a company purchases this, they're paying for it, but fundamentally because of that privacy issue we're talking about, the information doesn't flow back into the company. And so it's, it's structured as a product that's delivered to their executives, a lot like health insurance, right? Companies buy or other like things like paying as well. for my parking pass in the garage or whatever. There you go. Yeah, you know, okay. in, in our, with our groups, it's sort of more like a paying for the golf club membership, but yeah, yeah you know, yeah, the parking pass, that, that's, that's yeah. like me, right? Paying for my uh, bike to work. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's that's right, it's, a, it's, a, it's an executive benefit. Um, so that's one piece of the sale. The other piece is that, is, is user adoption, right? And so that's where we get to the place of, of our protectees really understanding that this takes something off of their plate that they no longer have to worry about security for themselves, cybersecurity at least, for themselves, for their family members, for their home. And we've seen a lot of really good examples with our first uh, pilot customers where home security systems are almost universally addressable on the public internet. So this is an enabler of physical security issues. And I see you cringe, I, I felt the same way, but you wouldn't be, I mean, you'd be shocked to see how consistent that is across the board People want to be able to monitor their security cameras from anywhere and open the front gate to their property from anywhere. And the way physical security folks set that up is, you know, not being cybersecurity people is the, the simplest way. It's publicly addressable. Yeah, there's a username and password in front of it, but the boxes that are in place there are almost never patched and they usually have exploits that are at least a couple of years old. So how are you enforcing that, that even if they're buying the service for their clients, they even enforce this, right? So. Um, I mean, I think people aren't secure because they just don't care. So how are you making them be secure? Well, so if we had to enforce it, it wouldn't work, right? It's a benefit where across the holistic spectrum, like hundreds of capabilities we're talking about, we ask for a very limited number of behavioral changes. In fact, it's four. We ask our users to make four changes in how they normally operate. And we spend time training them. The, today, the, the, the product is delivered in a concierge fashion, so we've got boots on the ground in the homes of our protectees, setting up home networks and services, and spending some training time with our protectees. So that's a, that's a two-day deployment, usually. Um, and that's how we ensure that it's all set up and working properly. It's not a self-service product today. Um, but the entire rest of the life cycle of the product exists with very minimal interaction from our customers. So they don't need to change how they behave. If we if we expected that of them, then it would fail. So if you're boots on the ground, how do you scale? That's a great question. So from a business perspective, it's the, the concierge piece of the deployment is a two-day thing, but all of the intellectual property that we built really fits into two buckets. It's the automation that allows us to scale. So we can spin up the entire, we refer to it as a syndicate, the entire syndicate infrastructure. So a syndicate is kind of one license. It's an executive or a high-value target their family members and their homes, in a lot of our cases we have multiple residences we're covering, and that is one unit, and that syndicate gets its own dedicated infrastructure, including isolation and security boundaries, but also including some cool stuff like privacy protections around how their logs are aggregated, their uh, data retention policies around those logs, and the ability to wipe out their infrastructure with the push of a button. 
and have it spun back up. So what we call nuke and pave in the you know in the, the CS world. So our ability to provide a much higher level of, of privacy protection is what often encourages, it's not just the security, but it encourages a lot of that uh, user adoption. And then once you have it and you're using it on a daily basis and it requires almost nothing of you except you know, flipping that switch to turn on the VPN when you're connected to an untrusted network. Or, and it's, it's not a public VPN, right? It's your own personal syndicate VPN. Um, and doing that before you then try and go look at your security cameras so that you've <laughs> authenticated to your own uh, VPN concentrator. Um, and some of the cool site-to-site -site sharing stuff that allows us to ensure that if you're connected to one residence, you're, you're connected to your syndicate and they're all brought under that same security boundary. Um, so there are some additional benefits beyond security benefits that uh, really help boost the adoption of our users. Yeah, so let's talk about the boost in adoption and the ease of flipping a switch, like you were saying. I'm wondering how your conversations with corporate security directors have gone, because I think there was an article earlier this week that looked at the tens of millions of dollars that goes into just tech CEOs being... Um, guarded by corporate security. I think Apple spends like $40 million to guard Tim Cook and right. Zuckerberg. There's $10 million that goes into Zuckerberg. So I'm wondering if you've seen sort of, for lack of a better term, the light switch go off when you talk to corporate security directors where it is just a flip of the switch and we're not talking about 24-7 drivers or personal golf jets or right. bulletproof glass in, in office windows. This seems to be a pretty easy solution for the CEOs and the corporate security directors that have these million dollar budgets but can just turn around and go, oh, hey, my, my CEO can do this easily. Right, so I, I, the conversation goes something like this. Um, okay, so it's one of two things. Either we get it, we know it's a problem, we haven't been able to do anything about it yet because there's not a good you know, holistic solution out there. Or in a lot of cases, I, I've gotten a call the next day where they said, I really wish you hadn't come in and talked to us. <laughs> if if I, I was just kind of ignoring that piece of the puzzle and now I can't, and now if there's an article about how my CEO was breached in his personal life, I have this other piece of it, which is that I, I had a conversation with you and I kind of knew it was an issue, but I didn't do anything. So that's been you know kind of fun seeing that, that uh, light bulb uh, moment. I would say, as far as um, the question of protecting those who, uh, in a lot of cases we've talked with chief security officers who have responsibility for physical protection as well. Okay. And, and in, uh, I use one example, uh, this is a Fortune 500 company, a big brand, and they said, well, we have two physical security teams. Right? We have one that's completely dedicated to our execs. Our, the, the, in this case, it's a, a Fortune 500 company that's also still family-owned. Okay. So they said, we protect the family. Right? It's a little mafia-esque. <laughs> I'm guilty of that, too, with our syndicate language. Okay. It's, it's uh, you know, we protect the family with one team when they're doing corporate events, when they're doing any kind of work business. And we have a whole separate team that protects the family in their personal lives. The, the light bulb moment was, why don't we have that for cyber? We have this whole corporate cyber team, 
And then in their personal lives, in, in this case, it was similar that the enterprise was paying for a bunch of stuff, but they, they still had those bright line boundaries because it was Got a it. publicly traded company where it's not like network logs were coming back into the right. enterprise. I don't I can't speak for any of the specific examples you gave Tim Cook or, or you know Mark Zuckerberg. Okay. But but I I find it hard to imagine that there are corporate security directors who are who would be comfortable with, you know, the principals, kids device logs coming back into the enterprise. I have no doubt they're spending a lot of money to protect them. Um, but doing it in a, in a holistic and productized fashion where you can really just point to the, the, the health insurance equivalent okay. and say, yeah. this is the company we hire to provide that as a, as a, as a benefit to all of our high-value targets. Great. So to wrap up, yeah. we ask all of our guests a completely random question to end the interview. <laughs> this one is particularly random, so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. If you were sent 400 years in the past, no clothes, no tech, just plopped down into 1619, how would you prove to people you were from the future? He's absolutely stopped. I am dumbfounded. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. Maybe, uh, let's see, 400 years? Um, 1619, let's, let's say you're, you're in the see, Northern Virginia. Knowledge, yeah, what was happening in, in Oh, oh, so... Uh, You're probably dealing with Native Americans. Right. Um, no tech. Um, uh, probably something around numbers, right? The okay. ability to predict things based on, um, on, on risk-based outcomes rather than, um, than you know, at that, at that time, I think almost universally across the globe, there was... Uh, a belief that everything was controlled by some set of deities, and uh, rather than you know prayer or uh, but being able to show the relationship between chance, maybe dice. To okay. Be able to play with dice. Interesting. I don't know. Very very interesting. All right. That Great. Was a good one. Yes. I, I, was, I, I thought I was going to be ready and prepared for anything random. Uh, <laughs> I was definitely not ready for that one. Well, the randomness is what teaches you from the future, apparently, right. with the dice. Right. So very good. All works together. Nate. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you talking to us about your company. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Take care. Thanks to Nate again for taking the time to talk to us about Siphon Black. And that's it for this week. As always, stay curious. <laughs>